excited about this passage, and uh, it is a very big passage, which is why last week Pastor Matthew took the first run after it. And we're going to finish it up, basically. We're going to kind of take a little bit different look, but we're going to finish up this passage that goes all the way to the end of chapter 6. So, of course, we are in the Sermon on the Mount series called The King and the Kingdom. The King and His Kingdom. Jesus is the King of this Kingdom. And if you have put your faith in, in God through Jesus Christ, then He has brought you into that Kingdom. And you have a purpose but there are things that can rob us of kingdom living. And there are things that can rob us of being effective in the kingdom of God. We are to be serving him. We are to be becoming more like him. He's the rabbi. We are the, remember the word Talmudi, the disciples of Jesus Christ. But yet there's things that can prevent that, that he wants by his power to overcome. And so the power of the gospel is going to be on display in this message. And we're going to see it. Now, let me tell you how we're going to approach this. When I was a kid, all my life, I grew up in central New York in a very small town surrounded by miles and miles of woods and hills. And I love storms. My wife gets so mad at me because I probably, yes, would be the one that does not leave Florida. That's me. I have always been like this. I love st storms. And in the fall... We would get horrific rainstorms in New York, but in the springtime, we would get these like freakish snow melts. It would warm up and rain, and all of that snow and all that ice coming down off that hill would just make the creek beds rise and flood. And we were always outdoors. I spent more time outdoors than I did indoors. I'm an outdoors kind of guy. And so I remember my friends and I, and sometimes my family and I, we would do this all the time. We would come to a creek that is swollen, and we would want to get from one bank to the other. And so we would take, you, you probably have all done this, we would take these rocks, and we would throw them every few feet. And once we got enough in there, we would just step right across the rocks from the, first, from the, the one bank all the way to the next bank. Now I want you to hold that image in your mind. You're throwing rocks in so that you can have stepping stones to get across. Because really, that's the approach. that I believe that's probably not maybe in the mind of Jesus when he's preaching this, but it works. It's a metaphor. He's going to take us from one bank. He's going to throw rocks in. He's going to let us step across them out onto the other bank. That's basically what he does in effect in this passage. Now, let me show you the two banks. Now look at verse 24. You've got to have your Bibles open. Because remember, I don't put the main preaching text up on the screen. The reason I don't do that is because I want you bringing your Bibles. I want to force you into the Bible. If you didn't bring yours tonight uh, or this morning, then that's fine. Just grab a Bible right in front of you in the back of that pew. First book of the New Testament is the book of Matthew. And I want you to open that up to chapter 6. And I want you to look at the first bank and the second bank, you're going to see them clearly in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now I want you to see something. Look at the very first word of the very next verse. Verse 25. And I'm going to teach you a study principle. Therefore... 
Now listen, when you're reading the Bible, which I hope is every day, I hope you hold fast to the Word of God, and you read the Word, therefore, listen, here's what you must learn to do. You've got to stop. Don't even dare go forward, because you're not going to understand what the Bible is saying until you go backward. Therefore, puts it in reverse. And you go back and say, okay, what did the Bible say just before? And what the Bible said just before was what we just read, verse 24. You can't serve two masters. You've either got the God master or the money master. You've got the God bank or you've got the money bank. You've got one bank where you're serving money, verse 24. You've got the other side where the gospel wants to get all of us where you're serving God. You've got the money bank. Well, there's disastrous effects on the disciples of Christ. We're going to find out. Here's what happens. If you're going to serve money, you're going to be full of anxiety and worry. You see, on the other side of the stream, the God bank, there, it offers peace and trust and life. Now, if you're listening attentively, the question has got to be stirring in you, or at least if it's not, let me introduce the question in you. How do I get then from the money bank to the God bank? From serving money to serving God. How do I cross the stream? The question is, who will we serve? Now, let me define that for you. I'll take a, a couple different stabs at it. It means, who will we run after? Who will we pursue? Now, listen, here's what the word serve means. It's actually a synonym for worships. So, who will we worship? What will we adore? Money? Or will we adore God? What will we make the object of our greatest passion? Money with all of the promising allurements with it. Security, happiness, materialism, possessions. Or God. Life, satisfaction, true security. So who will you worship? Who will you abandon everything for? Who will you make the priority? That's all bound up. And this little word serves. You see, we serve God working without complaining. Oh, that is so hard. That is so hard. Are you a complainer? Do you know that the Bible, God particularly despises complaining? Because complaining always has a root that turns vertical. Whether you're complaining about your parents... And their rules, or your boss, or your spouse, or the government, or the president, or hurricanes. It all turns vertical where ultimately you're complaining about God. He's the sovereign one. He gave the parents. He provided the job with that boss. He brings and allows sometimes hurricanes and travesties. Listen, complaining has a vertical orientation. So when you serve God, you work without complaining. You set apart yourself from lazy people when you serve God well at work. We serve God doing dishes as if we're doing the dishes that we just served to the King of Kings, Jesus. 
Do you know that you can actually have that mindset when you're mowing the lawn that the king, Jesus, it's his grass, it's his yard. You might be leasing it on life, but it ultimately belongs to Jesus. And you get to mow it and make it pleasing to the Lord. You get to do those dishes to the Lord. You get to clean the house. Not ultimately because of your own obsessive compulsive desires, which some of us have. Not only because of your spouse. You clean the house ultimately because this is God's home. And you bring glory because God is a God of order. You write papers for college as if it's Christ's grade on the line you do your very best for his glory so listen if we work for god this is a little bit of what it looks like but if you're on the other side of the stream and you're working for money you're serving money and you're believing the possessions are going to provide your happiness and a bank balance can give you security well then you cannot be consumed with christ there's no room in our hearts to serve both god and money. See, no one is above the call of the money bank. And if you bow down to money, expending great time, great thought, great energy, working so many hours, scheming to get more money, hoping you can cash in a lottery ticket, all of that, all of the urgency, all of the anxiety, all of the worry will accompany that. See, there's another way to live that will lead to life both here on earth and for eternity, it is serving God. That's where we're about to get to. So he's starting us on one bank where you're serving money, which really ultimately means you're serving yourself. And he's going to throw in some rocks so we can step across it to get to the other bank to where you can serve God and experience the peace and the life and the satisfaction that he has in store for all of his children. The power of the gospel helps you cross the stream. Here we go. You ready? We're going to fly through this. I'm going to give you the rocks that he throws in, but you got to start with a command. There is a command in verse 25, and here it is. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. That's not a suggestion. Notice he doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, don't, try not to be anxious. This is a command. Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you'll put on. Now, let's stop right there for a second. You ready? Now, let's, let, here's one of these anchor pins that you pop through the anchorage of your, your tent so it doesn't blow away in the storms of life. Ready? I'm going to help you drive it in. If you're taking notes, I think you should write this down. If you're not taking notes because you're a man, I'm sorry, did I say that? If you're not taking notes then at least try to remember this. Here it is. God will never, ever give you a command without giving you the power to obey it. Now I'm speaking to Christians. If you refuse to come to God through Christ, listen, you're on your own. You're in your own power. If you think that you can be good enough do enough good things that you'll finally balance the ledger between your sins and a holy God, you're on your own. You have no power from God to be able to do this. But if you're a disciple of Christ, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, God will never give you a command without giving you the power to be able to obey it. 
Now, this is a lot different than my brother John. When I was 13, I had a snowmobile. I told you I was outdoors more than indoors. Had a Skidoo 338. And the carburetor, it was a single carb snowmobile, the carburetor gummed up. My brother is a genius. He could fix anything. And I mean it, he could fix anything. Me, not so much. I came to John, I said, John, this thing's not running right. He comes down and looks at it. He goes, your carburetor's got to be taken off. You got to take it apart. You got to clean it. Probably get a carburetor kit and put it back on. I said, are you kidding me? You lost me at carburetor. I said, will you help me? He says, yeah. He went over, got a slotted screwdriver, put it in my hand and said, go to it and walked away. That's not what God does. That's why my brother's a jerk. <laughs> Actually, I love him. That's not what God does. God will not put the screwdriver in your hand and tell you, you better figure out how to fix it. That's just not what he does. He never does it. Now listen, here's what he does. He issues you a service manual called the Bible. And then he gives you a new part called a brand new heart. That is ready to live for him. And then he gives you an expert technician that wears a shirt with a name Holy Spirit on it. Who guides you through everything you need to do. See, God will never give you a command without giving you the power and the grace to obey it. But I want to get you to the meat of this. And I want you to see something. So everybody get your eyes on the passage. I want you to count for a second. I'm going to give you an awkward pause while you do it. How many times do you see the word anxiety? From verses 25 through 34. Now everybody look and count. When you see a word being repeated this often... There is a message that the Bible is giving us. This is about anxiety. Anxiety, I'm going to define it for you. Six times it occurs in the English Standard Version. Anxiety is fearing the future because you doubt God's sovereign goodness. Now I want you to hear this because 18% of Americans identify with debilitating anxiety. Anxiety is fearing the tomorrow, the future, because you doubt God's sovereign goodness. Now come on, you got to drill into this because I'm really giving you the gospel's definition of anxiety. You will probably not hear this from a psychotherapist or a general practitioner. They're going to tell you it's an issue with your body. And I do believe there can be that. But there's a world underlying our body called the heart. For from it flow the issues of life. You've got to guard it. So there are pressures that your body can put onto your heart. To make it very, very difficult to live a life of anxiety's opposite, which is peace. So the opposite of anxiety is peace. Anxiety is the fear of tomorrow or the fear of the future because you're doubting God's goodness and sovereignty. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, anxiety is a daily statement to God saying, I don't think you have my best interest in mind. 
Anxiety, friends, is a fear of tomorrow. Now, where do I get that? Look at your text. Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life. And look look at the future tense. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. If that's not convincing to you, that go to the very end in verse 34, still talking about anxiety, because he reiterates the command, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You see, anxiety is always fear fear of the future. It feels like it's happening now and you've got the effects of it going on now, but it's the fear of what's coming. See, the word anxiety actually means to take thought. If you go to the Greek, that's what it means, to take thought. But it's amplified to mean overthinking or obsessional thinking. So you know this. If you, if you struggle with anxiety, you've got, you've got a turbo in your head. And you can see every scenario like a flash of lightning. And every scheme is going through there. And every possible thing that could go wrong is going through there like a blur. And for those with what's called generalized anxiety disorder, they can't get a handle on this to slow the blur down. And it chokes. It begins to strangle. In fact, the old English word for worry meant a chokehold or a strangle. And that's how it feels when you're struggling with anxiety. It's primarily a problem, as you're going to see, rooted in our faith. Now listen, some people get mad with that. Are you telling me, Pastor Tim, that I have a faith issue? And the answer is likely yes. And we all struggle with our faith. Anxiety Unless it is rooted in physiological level of your body, it is a faith issue. And even if it is coming from hormonal imbalances, it strikes a faith issue in the heart. And Jesus is going to start throwing some rocks in so that we can get to the other side. But I want to tell you what he says first. Look at the end of verse 25. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What he's saying there seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Life is more than worrying about these things. You see, this is what happens to anxious people, and I've got some experience in this. When you're anxious, first of all, the source of your anxiety becomes sovereign, it becomes paramount, it becomes powerful. It becomes all-consuming. It becomes your priority. It becomes the object of which you're actually unwittingly serving. But life is more than that object. Life is more than what you're worried about. Life is more than what you're anxious over. Life is the gift of God. He's given it to you. He's been giving it. He's given it to me for a purpose to enjoy Him. See, life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. And what Jesus is going to help us do, and we're about to get to rock number one, he's going to show us the focus on living in the kingdom of God, not obsessing on our basic needs, is the antidote 
to get us on the way to the other side of that stream. Here's rock number one. You ready? You want to write this down in your notes. Engage the mind and look. Look what he says in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. Now, can I stop there for a moment? You see that word look? That's a Greek imperative, which is just a really super-duper fancy way of saying this is a command. If you want to get to the other side, if you want to get to a life of peace, if you want to serve God rather than serve money with all of its accoutrements of anxiety, then the first thing Jesus says, the first rock he puts into the stream so you can step onto it, is look, look at the birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Jesus tells us the way you cross from the bank of anxiety and to the other side, you've got to stop and you've got to start opening your eyes. He's given life to birds, but they're not created in his image. Now, some people are bird watchers. Some of you might be bird watchers. John Stott, he's no longer alive. He's a famous Catholic Christian theologian, incredibly good one. He was a massive bird watcher. He took it from this passage, look at the birds of the air. He learned, he wrote volumes of theology on God from watching birds. Yet they're not created in his image. Now listen, I want you to do something. I know this is juvenile. I know this is ridiculous, but I want you to take your right hand and I want you to just squeeze a little bit on your left arm. Squeeze a little bit. And then I want you to, I know this is crazy, and if you're not comfortable, that's fine. Okay, let go of your arm. I want you to close your eyes for a second. And I want you to look inwardly into your life. I want you to look at your personality. I want you to look at your ability to think, even to listen to me forming words in your brain and being able to respond to them, sometimes disagreeing with what I'm saying, sometimes agreeing. Birds can't do this. They're not created in the image of God. They cannot truly utter the name of Jesus Christ and respond in worship to him. Listen, they are not created in the image of God. You are. The value that you have over birds is astronomically large. And if he cares for birds, why would he not care for his own children? How much more value are you? I mean, this is what Jesus is saying. It says in Psalm 147, he gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. And then Jesus, echo it in your mind, are you not of more value than they? So listen, what, do you, what have you got coming tomorrow or next week or in a month? Do you have a medical exam that's not yet come back, but you're suspicious? This is going to be bad news. You've got bills coming due and you don't know how to pay them. You've got a job that's coming to the end and you don't know where the next job is going to be. Listen, whatever's coming tomorrow, God is already there. He says, stop. Don't think beyond today. Quit thinking about tomorrow. He doesn't say stop planning. He doesn't say be irresponsible. He says stop obsessing over tomorrow, thinking that all your anxiety is going to fix it. 
and to stop and look at what God does for the animal kingdom. Are you of not much more value than they? You know what modern Christianity does wrong? This is an absolute pet peeve of mine. I've been thinking on this for years, at least 15. Most of the modern worship music does this. A lot of the modern books do this. Too much modern preaching does this. Here's what it does. Modern preaching, singing, and books begin with us and end with us. That's the wrong starting point, and it's the wrong finish line. Because what that does is it cements us into narcissistic, self-centered Christians. It's not about us. It's about God. And what we need to do is start with the one who values us. He's the one that puts the price tag on you. He's the one that puts the value on you. And it ends with us responding in exaltation, responding in adoration. It's not that, wow, look how good we are, how valuable we are. No wonder God loves us. That's the wrong trajectory. It's how amazing is our God that I would have a week like I just had with not controlling my tongue, and yet he still loves me. I want to return adoration to him. How much more value are you than birds? Rock number one. You want to get from the side of anxiety, the side of serving the things of this world, over to the other side where it's all about serving and worshiping and your object of delight is God. You want to get over there. The very first rock is you got to stop and quit obsessing about tomorrow Look at the birds today. Look at the creatures today. Look at how God cares for them. Are you of not much more value? Then he's going to throw in another rock. Step number two. Engage your minds and realize. Look what he says in verse 27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? You know, the actual literal translation is, who can add another cubit to your life? In other words, if your life ends here, who can even take another 18 inches, which is how long a cubit was? You can't. God holds the end of your life in his hands. God knows precisely, listen, he knows precisely the moment you will take your final breath. He's got all of that in his plan. He's got all of that in his sovereign purpose for you. So which of you, by being anxious... Ang- let, me, let me say one more thing about anxiety. I'm actually going to say a couple more things, but I'm going to keep defining this for you. Ready? Now listen to this. Anxiety is our effort to control our lives, which, it, which is why it brings such lack of peace. Because what Jesus is saying is, you can't control your life. You can try, you can fret, you can worry. You can do everything you possibly think to do. But you're utterly out of control of it. But there is one who is in control. And this rock gets you to stop and realize, you know what? Our God is in control. I don't need to keep controlling everything. 
Anxiety is the effort to control what is uncontrollable. The power is all in the hand of God, and he is a good God to be trusted with our future. But then he throws a third rock. Engage your mind and consider. Now, if you're picking up a pattern here, they all begin with engage your mind. Now, can I speak to that for just a moment? Can you look at me for just a moment? I know some of you are writing, that's fine. Anxiety is a battle of your mind. It is believing the wrong things. Peace is the submission to the sovereign good God where your mind doesn't go in neutral, your mind begins to actively believe the right things. So if you're prone to anxiety, here's your enemy. Your enemy is you're believing and thinking the wrong thoughts. And everything Jesus is doing is to take your mind, Romans 12, and renew it. Get your mind to stop trying to control. Stop thinking that God doesn't care. Stop believing that God doesn't know what's going on in your life. Arresting that. Stopping forward momentum. And actually beginning to move in the right trajectory. That's the power of the gospel. Your father in heaven is good. Your father in heaven is sovereign. He values you. He's got the future in his hand. You don't need to try to fix and control what is uncontrollable. It's all a battle in the mind. So he says, verse 28, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But, that works like flipping the coin. Now you're on the contrast. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And here's the problem in every anxious person's heart. Oh, you of little faith. Now remember, six times he mentions anxiety or anxious. That's the theme here. He's getting us across the stream to peace, the, the opposite of anxiety. And he begins to tell us to consider, which is a word that means to observe fully, to contemplate, to really pay attention to something. Look closely at flowers of all things. Look how beautiful they are, yet they didn't do a thing to make themselves beautiful. Jesus says, God the Father does all of that. Now you might be, and I gotta, I gotta fight secularism in our minds. Because you're gonna think what your science teachers have told you. Part of which is true, that there are all kinds of chemical and biological and botanical reactions going on inside of a flower that make what happen, happen. And part of that is true. But listen, there is a world below that that Colossians says that Jesus Christ upholds everything, everything. In other words, I'm going to tell you in your bodies, scientists don't understand why your molecular structure doesn't fly apart. Everything they know are atoms should fly apart. They don't understand why they don't. Well, we do, Christian. It's the power of Jesus Christ which upholds everything. So below the layer of science 
is the world of Jesus. He's the one making flowers beautiful. God is the one that is allowing a flower to spring up. And God is the one that sent Jesus to teach us how to get off the stream of anxiety and over to the stream of peace where we can live with rest and life and satisfaction. And Jesus says, stop and consider. Think deeply. Meditate long. If God makes temporary flowers so beautiful... Well, how much more does he care for his children who are created in his image? You know what they did, right? I mean, I think probably a lot of us know this. They made square clay ovens in the time of Jesus. And they would bake bread inside of them. And they would often use dried dung, believe it or not, or branches or wood to be able to get the fire under the oven going. But if they're really in a hurry to get that bread heated fast, what they would do is they would take flowers, they would pluck them, they would dry them in that sun, and when they were dry, they would throw some of them inside that oven to be lit a light, a light, you know, with fire, and that would heat up the oven even faster. This is what they did with flowers, and this is what Jesus is saying. These flowers look so beautiful today, but tomorrow they're going to be plucked, and they're going to be dried, and they're going to be used for the oven. So how much more value then do you have? If your father takes care of flowers and makes them for a delight, then what's he going to do in your life? Why are you anxious? Why are you trying to control the uncontrollable? Why are you worried and afraid for tomorrow? Because the father has already been there. He's got everything in control and he is a good, good God. So trust him. Now I want you to picture anxiety for a moment as one side of a coin. And here I'll, all I want you to do is just rotate it in your mind. Flip it. And you've got peace. And I want you to do the same thing with fear. fear. Anxiety is a particular type of fear. It's all about the future. I want you to flip the fear coin. And what you've got is faith. So you of little faith is you of great fear. And you of great peace is you of little anxiety. And you of, little, of great anxiety is you of little faith. That's how it works. It flips in your heart. And sometimes you go throughout the day, you know this, and that coin is just rotating in your heart, rotating in your mind. You're like on good footing, and then all of a sudden anxious thoughts come, and you got to, by the power of the gospel, flip it. You've got faith, you've got trust, and here comes the devil tempting you, whispering thoughts in your head. You're believing the wrong ones. You're back to anxiety coin. We are the disciples of Jesus. We are the children of God. Of all people in the world, we must defeat anxiety and grab hold of peace. Otherwise, verse 31, we're like the Gentiles. For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now listen, Jesus does not use the word Gentiles like a racist epithet. This is not what it means. It's a class of unbelievers. When he speaks about Gentiles, he's talking about those who do not believe. 
But those who live in the kingdom of God, that would be you and I, brother and sister, if you put your faith in Jesus, we've got to be distinct from those in the kingdom of this world. And what should mark our lives, our lives of peace and not anxiety. So we've got the final rock that Jesus throws. Rock number four. Engage your mind and focus. Engage your mind and focus. Look at verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God. Focus on the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Now most people focus on the first half of this verse. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But that is possible when you truly believe the second half. And all these things will be added to you. Now listen, what are these things? Now listen, brother and sister, you've got to hear this. This is one of the most critical things I'm going to tell you. The things that will be added to you are all the things you need in order to live life for God's glory. It's everything you need. Everything you need to live life for God's glory. If you're saying, you know what, I need to be accepted by my friends. That's not a true need. That's a want. And you know what happens when you're not accepted? Anxiety. I need a different home. That's a want in most cases. Not a need. And what happens is discontent. I need an effective treatment for this disease. Well, that's a want. For God holds the end of your days in his hand, but it results in fear. I need a larger retirement fund. That's a want. And it results in withholding generosity to other people because it's time to now hoard. We could go on and on. Almost always our anxiety fixates on wants, not needs. Did you catch that? Almost always Our anxiety fixates on wants, not needs. And the Father in heaven says, listen, I'm going to bring all the needs that you have. So focus on the kingdom. What's that mean? What's it mean, the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is that invisible realm of God's rule. And it's made visible through the church. Listen, when we live with integrity that the gospel has created in us, we're making the invisible visible. When we sacrifice to give to those who are in need, we're making the invisible rule of God visible. And people can see it. And they begin to hunger. I want to be in the kingdom. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. I can see it. I can taste the goodness of God. Well, how do you taste and see that God is good? Well, you live and you make visible what was invisible. And I'm going to give you some ways to do that. How do you seek the kingdom of God? Now, listen, I'm going to give you five or six ways. And I want you to think through this. And see if the Lord might be prodding you to begin living this way. Here's the first. It begins by pursuing the king of the kingdom. Jesus. Now listen, I've been pastoring for a long time. And this is the one thing that I have seen almost probably more clearly clearly than anything else. Christian after Christian after Christian whose spiritual walk with God 
is anything but passionate. If you were married the way that you follow God, you would have a horrible marriage. If you treated your children with the same relational love and passion and effort by the way you treat God, your, your family would be in chaos. It begins with this. If you want to focus and seek the kingdom of God, it begins necessarily by learning to, to focus and seek the king. That means he becomes your all-consuming interest. That means you don't let a day go by without spending time with him, without learning about him more, without sacrificing, without picking up your cross and denying yourself daily and following him. You might want to go do this, but you know he wouldn't be pleased. So you say no, and instead of just taking something out of your life, you put something in. You pursue God through serving him. It all begins with focusing on the king. And honestly, for a lot of us, we don't do real well. That has to change. Number two, to seek the kingdom of God is to pray for his kingdom to come more fully, that the reign and the rule of Christ would be seen in greater ways, both in Easton and in America, and then all over the world. Listen, how much are you praying right now that the rule and the reign, the perfect, beautiful, good rule and reign of God would be displayed in your own home through you. And in your workplace through you. I mean, listen, you might want to say, God, would you make yourself visible at work? And he's going to be saying, okay, well, that's why I saved you and gave you that job. Now go make me visible. That's the rule and reign of Christ come visible. And that's our job as we work in the kingdom. It is to share, number three, the message of the gospel with unbelievers that they might come into the kingdom. When's the last time, Christian, that you walk some, somebody through the gospel story? That you cared so much for their soul, burdened so much that they're going to go to hell, that you risked your reputation. And you said, I've got to tell you about a story that changed my life. Listen, you're not seeking the kingdom of God if you're not working in the kingdom, making the invisible visible. That's the first way we do it. We speak the gospel. Number four, Christian, to seek God's kingdom is to submit to him and obey him in everything. It's to deny yourself. Christian retailers who don't open on Sundays, you know what they're doing, right? They're making the invisible visible. Our God wants a rhythm of rest. And yeah, I'm going to lose a boatload of money every week because I'm not open. And my competitors are. But you know what? My God holds my future in my hand. He will provide everything I need. I do not need to be anxious about it. Therefore, I will bring glory to him and make the kingdom visible. Christian politicians who refuse to pass godless agendas and they lose votes are seeking the kingdom. They're making the, vis the invisible visible. Christians who will not compromise their purity in a dating relationship and so the guy or the girl leaves them they're making the invisible visible 
and God is gaining the glory. Christians who do not go on glamorous vacations, although they're okay to go on, but if you choose not to because you want to take that money and give it to those who are in need, but all your neighbors are going on glamorous vacations, will you give them a reason why you're not going? You're making the invisible visible, and God gains the glory. Fifth, and I'm almost done, means that we are concerned. What's it mean to seek the kingdom? We're concerned with Christ-centered social reform and justice efforts that bring about the desires of God. It's to work hard to stop abortions. It's to work hard to prevent the rampant spread of pornography. It's to actually pursue and rescue those caught up in slavery of children and women and anybody it's to pray for the destruction of ungodly governments. It's to bring Christ back into the schools. Listen, teachers getting together to, together to pray on their lunch breaks. That's how you're bringing the invisible visible. That's how you're seeking the kingdom. It's teenagers, students who are taking the initiative to say, you know what, I don't know what I'm doing, but I can get some help from my pastors. I'm going to start a Bible study in my school, and I'm going to make the invisible visible, and to God be the glory. That's how you seek the kingdom. But anxiety, as I close... It's almost always, now listen, I hope you hear this, it's almost always the condition of a self-centered life rather than Christ-centered life. So what do we do? Well, here's those rocks. You look at God's care for the animal kingdom and remember how much more valuable you are. You realize you're powerless, but God is powerful. And you consider deeply how he provides for even a non-permanent flower. And persuade yourself, your soul, of how much more he's going to provide all that you need to do all that he's going to ask you to do. And you prod your soul with urgency to live distinct from the Gentiles. And finally, you focus on the right thing, the permanency of the kingdom of God, making the invisible visible. Now friends, that's how you step across the stream. That's how you get to the other side where there's peace. And that's why Jesus says in verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. It's future fear. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Peace is giving all your troubles to the Lord today. Realizing he's already there tomorrow. I like what George Mueller said as I close. The beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. And the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. Friends, do you struggle with anxiety? Step on those rocks and get across that stream and begin to serve the king. Amen?